Explain Yourself listeners. Today on our podcast, we have Andrea Staggs, who works for a wedding venue. Now, when she was growing up, she said she wanted to work with serial killers or rapists. So imagine a teenage girl telling you that's what she wants to do. But she said ultimately what she wanted was to help people. So she spent two years in people's homes doing therapy, four years working in a children's psychiatric hospital, and then went to graduate school to get a professional counseling license. So naturally when she graduated, she took a job in event venue management. And on top of all of this, she was an NFL cheerleader for the Chiefs for a couple of seasons, which was incredibly fun. Recently, she got to marry the man of her dreams. So we're gonna talk to her about both sides of the coin, recently being a bride and also working at a wedding venue and all of the fun stuff that comes along with both. Welcome Andrea to Explain Yourself. We're so excited to have you tonight. You and I chat on Instagram all the time. So I'm excited to air quotes officially meet in person. Yes, I'm so excited. So we start every episode discussing what drinks we're having. I am doing dry January, so and whole 30. Very exciting month for me over here. So I'm actually <laughs> drinking a cherry lime kombucha. Not super exciting, but I'm drinking it out of a wine glass to make it a little bit more fun. Keeps it fancy. Yeah. How about you? What are you drinking? So I just have hot chocolate. I was thinking about, you know, oh, I'm going to grab a white claw or a glass of wine. And then I just decided hot chocolate sounded better. So not much more exciting over here. Julie, what do you have? I was just going to say, I would love the opportunity to taste a hot chocolate right now. <laughs> he recently lost my smell and taste. So I thought of just like coming in hot with a tequila shot to see if I could taste it. And it that even though I can't taste or smell still made me physically ill. So I'm sticking with the LaCroix this week. That's what better time to take a tequila shot than when you can't taste or smell it. I do have to share this story. Julie's husband sent me a video of her biting into a piece of red onion over the weekend. And you just hear her crunching into it. And she's just like, I can't taste any of it. <laughs> it was really upsetting to watch. It was so sad because Friday, well, Saturday morning, I could taste things like I had, I don't know, something stupid like a yogurt. And I was like, hmm, this tastes rather dull, but I can still get hints of peach or whatever it was. So I was like, okay, I'm going to order hot wings for lunch. By the time the hot wings came to my house, I couldn't taste a single one of them, but I still eat them. I was just, it was sadness. It was like I was eating and crying and <laughs> just wanted to feel something again. What better way to feel things than with spicy chicken wings? <laughs> well, hopefully you'll be able to taste them again soon and I don't know. What's your first meal going to be when you get your taste back? Yeah. So I thought about this deeply and I think it's going to be ramen and crab rangoon. A very solid choice. I like it. All right. So we're going to go to the very, very beginning. What did you want to be when you were growing up? So this was a rather disturbing answer for my parents, but as a small child, I wanted to interview serial killers that was like what I wanted to do. I wanted to get in their brains. I wanted to figure out why they killed people, how they could kill mass amounts of people. Um, and then as I got older, it grew into, I wanted to add 
add um, sex offenders to that list as well, because why not, you know, serial killers and sex offenders as, you know, a 15 year old girl, why wouldn't you want to study that? So that's where it all started. Um, When we took those, I don't know if you guys took them, but at my high school, I had to take, you know, tests every year that was like, oh, here's a projected you know, industry you might be interested. I highly doubt they had one that was like, here, interview a bunch of violent people, you young teen. Yeah, it sounds like a great career path. (laughs) Was there something that you watched as a kid or you saw as a kid that made you interested in all of that? I mean, I'm sure there probably was. I mean, I grew up like Criminal Minds, Law and Order, all of those shows, but I don't feel like that's a normal effect for people that watch those shows. That's just always been so fascinating. And it still is. I mean, it's still one of those things that if someone called me tomorrow and we're like, Hey, do you want this job to do that? Absolutely. In a heartbeat. You just don't typically find that job on indeed or Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. The CSI isn't normally posting on LinkedIn asking for job openings. (laughs) Right. <laughs> so you kind of get through high school. Did you already mention majoring in this in college or? Oh, so, no, you're good. So I entered college majoring in psychology. So right, you know, down that alley. And then I took my first criminal justice class, which kind of woke me up to, hey, this is kind of cool. Like I enjoy this as well. Um, and then I took a sociology class and thought that was great. So I ended up triple majoring in psychology, criminal justice, and sociology. Um, my criminal justice degree had a concentration in corrections. So that was as close as I got to kind of the serial killer sex offender side of it. Those are three very difficult things to major in. How did you balance all of the courses for that? It honestly, it worked out easier for me. Um, once I kind of knew I had interest in all three, I looked into the pathway and so many of the courses overlapped between all three that I, I mean, I still finished in four years. I took a few summer classes in between um, just to knock out gen eds at a community college that was a lot cheaper, but yeah, they overlapped enough. And honestly, like I enjoyed what I was studying. So those classes were fun. The other ones, not so much, but you have to do those. Okay, so you're studying the big three of criminal justice system and, you know, the science behind it. So next steps, what, applying to Quantico or what are you doing? You know, I wish. Um, Next steps, I had a very big blessing. I graduated on a Saturday, started a big girl job on Monday um, as what is called a BIAHIS counselor, which was behavioral health intervention specialist. And I was going into people's houses and meeting with their kiddos, just on behavioral things, um, you know, basic struggles in school, struggles getting along with the family, had a lot of really crazy stories about that. I don't know whoever let a 21-year-old female go into people's homes and just, you know, check it out. That gives me nightmares. But about six months into that, I kind of had this realization that, you know, I'm 21. I have a great job. I get up and I go to work every day, but like, is that it? This is all you do the rest of your life. You get up, you go to work, you go home, you die. Like that's it. And so that is what led me into looking into auditioning for the Kansas city chiefs. Um, I had thought about doing it before auditions are January, February ish every year. And every year that time came around and I was like, yep, I'm going to do it this year. 
So after being out in the real world for a little bit, I was like, yep, this is my year. I'm going to do it. Um, ended up driving down my first year. My dad called me and he was like, hey, what are you doing? And I was like, um, I'm in Kansas City, which was three and a half hours from where I lived. He was like, oh, yeah, what, what are you doing there? I was like, I'm auditioning to be a chief cheerleader. And he was like, oh, because, you know, that's what the average person does on a Thursday. And I was like, yeah. It's, it's going to be great. I had no idea what I was doing. I just thought like, hey, I grew up a dancer. Let's go audition. How hard could it be? It's really hard. And I had no idea what I was doing. I made it to finals by some miracle. Again, had no idea what I was doing. Didn't make the team that year, but then it became like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this team. Tried out the next year and made it. So that led to me moving to Kansas City, Another very quick, crazy story of I found out on a Tuesday, I moved on a Thursday. My parents helped me pack overnight, drove me down, dropped me off and left. And we're like, all right, bye. Good luck. Again, 22 year old in another state by herself. What could go wrong? So I grew up in Dallas, so I'm very familiar with the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and making the team. I also did competitive cheerleading throughout high school. So Cheerleading was a major part of my childhood. Julie is a huge fan of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders making the team. And she has maybe texted me on a few occasions saying that she's practicing her high kicks. I'm totally (laughs) embarrassing her right now, practicing her high kicks. And she's ready to try out anytime the Chiefs want her or the Cowboys cheerleaders want her. So I just have to know a little bit more about the experience and what it was like being a Chiefs cheerleader. Absolutely life-changing. I never in a million years understood until I made the team what this sisterhood that comes with it is like. Um, Growing up a dancer, I was just looking for another way to continue dancing. I just loved it and that was a good outlet for me and that's what led me to the team. And instantly I talked about that first year not making it of course, I care that I didn't make it, but I wasn't as heartbroken as I thought because the friendships that I made in the first initial uh, audition process I have still today, all the girls I cheered with, I still have incredible relationships with today. 10 of my 12 bridesmaids were girls I cheered with. So these are people that are in my life. So addition to getting to dance, getting to travel the world, getting to be a part of an incredible organization. I gained so many lifelong friendships um, that, like I said, are just so much bigger than dance and cheer, so much bigger than, you know, the outcome of a game on Sunday, so much bigger than a calendar. It just, there's not enough incredible things to say about that experience. So that's incredible. Were you dancing at college or were you just dancing on the side during college and transitioned to the Chiefs? I actually didn't do anything in college. I auditioned for my college dance team. And this is going to sound really, really, really snobby and bougie, but I went to a very, very small college. And after graduating from a very large high school, very large, well-known studio, going to a smaller college dance team was just not really the best fit. Um, So I actually went back and I helped coach at my high school throughout college. So I helped coach for a couple of years. I had my own JV team there for a year. So that's kind of what kept me in the dance world. And then I transitioned down to Chiefs. Is there something that's a little known fact about 
being an NFL cheerleader that people don't know? Man, I would say that they probably don't realize how much time goes into it. Um, we would have practices on Tuesdays and Fridays. There would be four, five, 18 and a half million hours. I lost track of how long they would go sometimes. We would have appearances throughout the week. We would have our junior CC programs sometimes on Saturday, game on Sunday. So while we still were full-time students, had full-time careers, this was not technically a full-time job, but took up the amount of time as a full-time job on top of all of that. So there's a lot more than just pretty faces and talented dancers on those sidelines. You have to have a great time management system as well. You know, for those who were working or even at school, how do you explain that you have five hours of practice on, you know, weekdays? Yeah, so practices would start right after work. So you would essentially clock out, have food in your car, have a protein in your protein bar in your car, change, do your hair, makeup, get to practice. I feel like everyone was always just frantic running late from one thing to the next. Practice would start at 5.30, you'd get done. We would celebrate if you were done by 11, usually 11, 12, and then you'd have to get up and go to work the next day. Or if you had a game on Sunday and you had to get up and go to work on Monday, you just looking back, that's why you do it when you're young because I couldn't do it now. No way. I'm thinking of how much coffee I would have to consume if I worked until midnight and then had to get up and go to work again. I would be a zombie. I look back and I have no idea how I did it. You do this as something to kind of fulfill that void you are having of I'm working, but I'm not feeling fulfilled as I'm working. So you become an NFL cheerleader. You do this for a couple of years. Did you decide to get your master's while you were doing that or did that come after? So that came after, I think it probably was between a year and two years after. While I was cheering, I was working at a children's psychiatric hospital. And so once I was done cheering, I just, you know, continued on at the hospital. And after a while, I just wanted to be able to do more. My position was limited based on the education that I had. And I had a lot of really great therapists that were like, you need to go to grad school. Like, here's an application, fill it out. I'll write you a letter. And I was just kind of like, eh, grad school, like, do I really need to do that? Sounds expensive. Sounds like a lot of work. And finally, one day I was like, no, you're right. Like, I'm going to apply for grad school. We'll just see what happens. I was a terrible student in my undergrad years. So I was like, there's no way someone's going to accept me into grad school. My GPA is like negative 4.0. And sure and behold, you know, I get this letter that's like, we'd love to interview you, you know, come in and let's go through that process. So show up to the interview again. I even debated not going. I was like, do I really want to do this? Like, this is silly. Like, I don't want to go to grad school. Um, Went through the interview and left and was like, holy, you know what? I want to go to grad school. And at that point, they were like, we take 66 people a year. And we have, I think there was like 130 people applying. So I was like, dang it, now that I actually want to do this, I, like, what are my chances? Because I haven't been taking it seriously. And I was just like, oh my goodness. So they told you the approximate date that you would receive your letter in the mail. And I told myself, like, I'm going to be able to tell if it's thin, it's just that one paper that's like, you know, thanks, nice try. But if it's thick, there's like, here's what's next. 
So I waited and I waited and I got that envelope and it was thick. And I, then I started to second guess myself, like maybe that's wrong. Like maybe they just tell you like, here's how to apply next year. Lo and behold, I opened it up and I was accepted into grad school, which was incredible. Um, I was probably eight or nine weeks in um, to my master's of counseling program when I decided maybe I don't want to be a school counselor. Maybe I want to do a different kind of counseling. So where there were three options in this program, but you were accepted into the program based on which one you chose because there could only be so many. So then I went to him and was like, um, JK, can I not do school counseling? Can I do marriage and family instead? And they were like, yeah, but you've missed nine weeks of work. So you have from today, Friday to Monday to catch up on those nine weeks. So any quizzes, any papers, any reading, like when you come on Monday, like you need to be caught up. So I was, that's what I did. I made the switch um, over to the marriage and family program. And 36 months later, I graduated May of 2019 with my master's of arts in counseling. All of the late nights of practice for cheerleading really helped you probably that weekend of staying up and pursuing and getting all the work done. Holy cow. Yeah. I cannot imagine somebody being like, yeah, go for it. If you can get it. It's almost like a challenge. Like they almost didn't think you could do it. Yeah. Like, LOL. Okay. Give it a shot. Here's 48 hours to do nine weeks worth of stuff. I mean, I didn't read it all. I did what I had to do. And then you just kind of play catch up from there, but fake it till you make it. I convinced him I was ready. So So you obviously like to stay incredibly busy. So after your master's program, you go into full-time counseling? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Plot twist again. Um, I graduated in May and in July. So backtrack, when you graduate with your counseling, degree, you are not licensed for another two to three months. So you take all your exams, you pass your exams, and then it takes about two to three months for the state to process your license. So you're seeing clients in your last year and a half of the program as an intern. But then you have this weird like couple month break where you can't really legally see clients because you're not an intern anymore, but you're also not licensed. So kind of just played around, continued working at the hospital during that time in my other position. And things just were going downhill. They weren't really what I wanted them to be. I kind of went through this phase where I was like, do I even want to be a counselor anymore? I, hindsight 2020, should never have probably gone through the program. I do not do a good job of separating my emotional feelings from my clients. I couldn't shut it off when I went home. I carried all of them with me. I wanted to adopt every child that I had as a client, every person I just worried about, prayed about, just, I couldn't let it go. And what you think that is good and should lead you into counseling is actually not good. It's a lot to carry. Um, and it had added up. I had been seeing clients for a year and a half by that point, and it was just really, really weighing heavily. And I wasn't enjoying 
the career anymore and logged onto Instagram one day and saw a post from a girl that was working for Abbott Events that was advertising for a venue manager position. And I had actually worked with her prior and just sent her a message. It was like, man, I wish that I had experience in the industry because that sounds so fun. Like that sounds the opposite of what I'm doing, go from marriage therapy to helping people get married. It's great. She was like, actually, I think you'd be great. You know, I've worked with you before. I know that you are so ridiculously OCPD. You're so type A. You'd be great at this job. And 48 hours later, I had accepted an offer with Abbott Events. And apparently grad school was just, you know, behind me at that point. (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, one, I love that you just like got on Instagram and landed on a job because that's not the typical route for finding a position. Uh, But two, I love that she took the experience she had with you in the past, like forget that you don't necessarily have what's on paper for an event manager, venue manager. She took your experience that she had with you and what you had been doing in your master's program and in previous roles and was able to apply that to this position, which is something that we kind of want people to see from this podcast is that you can go down one path, but you have the ability to take those skills and use them in so many other avenues. Absolutely. So speaking of pivoting and using your previous skills, you have some background in, you know, family and marriage counseling, and now you're in the wedding industry. Did your background help, you know, kind of fill those gaps of not having previous experience or what kind of pros and cons did you see in that switch? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the beginning, I was really nervous. I had just spent a lot of money on this degree that I wasn't going to use. You know, I've always been the kind of person that seeks my parents' approval, seeks my now husband's approval, my friend's approval, you know, what are they going to think that I've made all these sacrifices? I've missed all of these things to be in school now that I'm not going to use it. And, you know, my dad, who is just an amazing man and one of the most important people to me said, you know, you're not using your degree directly, but you're using your degree. You know, you are using people skills. You are using, you know, crisis intervention. You, you know, thinking on your feet, being prepared, relationship building, you know, just because you're not directly acting as a counselor, you are using that degree. And especially just the person that you grew to become in those three years that you were in that program is the person that is now the venue manager. So it doesn't matter, you know, what skills you're using, the growth that you made in those three years made you who you are, made you ready for this position. And I mean, he couldn't have been more right. There's been a lot of tense moments, as you can imagine, with weddings and events that, you know, being able to remain calm, being able to think on my feet, think under pressure, that has been super great. You know, COVID brides, hello, that is the most stressful thing on the planet. I think I've played counselor more in the past year, just going through brides that were having to figure things out during COVID than I've played venue manager. So, Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say it probably makes you more valuable as a venue manager because you are able to navigate those 
situations a lot better than, you know, as somebody who is currently going through the wedding planning process right now, you sometimes meet wedding venue managers and you're like, okay, so are you just like here to tell me how much I'm going to spend with you? And then you kind of disappear. Like, it sounds like you're helping them through so much more of the process than you know, some, some of the venue managers, managers out there who are just kind of there to take your money and send somebody else your way. Yeah, absolutely. My relationships that I build with my couples are so, so, so important to me. I, you know, get their save the dates and their invitations to my home address. They bless their souls, you know, brought me wedding gifts brides that I had that had already been married for six plus months reaching out. Like, I know it's your wedding week um, birthday wishes. It's just, these people are in my life for the rest of my life, whether they like it or not, because when you work with me and I get to be there on the most important day of your life, that's a relationship that I've built. And then I've treasured and I have a wedding coming up this year on my birthday. And I already told my husband, I'm like, I will be at that wedding. He's like, really? Like on your birthday, you don't have to, that's why you have venue coordinators. And I'm like, no, like these people, they're my people. These are my family now. And I want to spend my birthday making their day happen. So it's just, it's so great to be able to build those relationships. It's so great to be a person that, you know, they trust on the biggest day of their lives and someone that they can go to, especially now with all the craziness with COVID. It's, it's pretty special. So speaking of COVID, Obviously, you know this as a COVID bride yourself. How has COVID impacted the event industry? And what are some things that you guys have done to kind of pivot during the restrictions? Yeah, COVID came in like a wrecking ball. Holy cow. Um, I remember sitting there right before the very first shutdown being like, oh, you know, my mom's friends, neighbors, cousins, brother heard that, you know, things are going to get shut down. We need to go to the grocery store and buy everything because we're not going to be able to leave our house for the rest of our lives. Like all this crazy stuff. And lo and behold, a lot of it came true. We had to be shut down March through May. We didn't really get to have full size events until July, end of July, August. Things went downhill again, October, end of October, beginning of November, and we currently cannot have events. So we are still writing this story. Um, There will be another update coming out this week. So here we're just crossing our fingers, toes, eyes, legs, everything we possibly can that we get an idea of what's coming. I think that's been the hardest thing is there's no way to predict what's coming. Gosh, if I could just communicate one thing to everybody, it's we don't get any information any sooner than the public does. So, so many people call and they're just so frustrated that I don't know what to tell them, that I don't know what regulations are going to be in place. 10 days, 10 months from now. That's not what people want to hear. And as a COVID bride, I get it. You know, they need to send invitations out and they don't know if they're going to be able to have their wedding. I get it. Um, The mayor's office is on speed dial on my phone. They now know my number and they like to decline my number. Shout out to the mayor's office. Sorry about that. But they know what I'm calling about and they know that they can't give me any more answers, but I'm just going to keep calling them every week, just checking in and you know, they've gotten to the point now that they'll answer and they'd be like, Hey, we don't have anything, but you know, we'll email you if we do. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to keep calling just to make sure. So, you know, 
all jokes aside, they've been great. They've been really communicative. They've been great on, you know, asking my personal input on what they should do around weddings, which is incredible. A superpower that I never expected to have to represent the entire wedding industry in the mayor's office. But we're just, you know, trucking along and hoping that 2021 looks a little better for our brides. I know at one point back in gosh, probably like April or May, I reached out to you to see Mm -hmm. if you had any information because I was having some trouble getting some answers from our original venue that ended up having to shut down. You had told me that you guys were meeting the wedding industry in Kansas City was kind of meeting and helping each other, which I thought was really cool because I feel like the wedding industry is extremely competitive. So to kind of see all of these businesses that are pretty much fighting for, you know, business and attention to come together and join as one and try to help support each other was kind of cool to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I think at one point in time, I had 68 different people on one of these Zoom calls. We were having them weekly. Honestly, we just started them is let's bitch to each other about what the heck is going on and what we're going to do about it. And we'd probably do that for an hour. And then the last half an hour would be like, okay, like, let's, let's be productive. But it was a great resource for all of us, you know, stuck in our homes to still connect with each other and still brainstorm and bounce ideas off of each other. And that's, what's so unique to this industry. I know people in wedding industries in other States, it's not like that. They don't have what we have in Kansas city. You know, in Kansas City, we call vendors frienders because they're our friends and we work together and we love to have weddings together because we get to hang out together. Whereas, you know, I've heard from other states, they weren't even communicating with each other because they didn't want the other one to hear like what one of them knew about something happening. And honestly, I wouldn't want to work in an industry like that. Part of the reason that I love my job and I love the Kansas City wedding industry is the fact that we're not competitive with each other. You know, if someone comes in to tour the Abbott and is like, you know, it's not really my style. I'm like, Hey, have you looked at Grand Hall? Like go check them out or vice versa. You know, White Iron Ridge is opening and we can't wait to go tour there and, you know, refer people up there. So it's not, it's cutthroat from the outside, but it's so comforting and warm and friendly on the inside, which has been game changing during COVID. So do you think there are any COVID trends that will stick around in the wedding industry once things open back up? I think we're going to see a lot smaller weddings. I think people are learning during this time that bigger is not better, that you can have just as special and as amazing of a day with 50 people as you could have had with 350. I think buffets might be on their way out, which doesn't break my heart. It's always something so weird to me, which I had a buffet at my wedding. So who am I to talk? But I think those will be on their way out. Bigger weddings kind of on their way out. I'm I'm anxious to see, you know, I think if weddings go back to normal pretty soon, I don't think we'll see as many long-term changes, but if COVID's here to stay for a little bit and, you know, all these regulations are here to stay for a little bit, I think we might see a lot more stick around. Okay. So you work with an amazing team of women. You post about them on Instagram quite often about how proud you are of them and just how much you enjoy working with them. 
do you find that they're going to school for hospitality or something equivalent, or are they kind of just, you know, in this kind of zone like you were in where they are wanting something different than the path that they originally thought they were going to go down? These ladies are my besties. They are my ride or dies. They know everything about my life. They are truly my people. I talk to them all day, every day. We leave work and we hang out with each other. We hang out on weekends. It's obsessive and disgusting and amazing all at the same time. But none of them have a background in hospitality. All of us have just in our own little ways, ended up there. My venue manager partner, Addie, she is from Utah and moved here because her husband is in medical school and she planned for Madison Sanders events for a little bit and then came over to the Abbott. We have, my general manager was a teacher. Another one of our venue managers was a teacher. One of our sales girls came right out of college into her position. Yeah. I mean, None of them have a background in this and even our owner. So when the Abbott or Abbott events originated, he didn't have a background in venues or events and neither did our GM. And they went to lunch one day and heard about, you know, having a wedding venue and we're like, Hey, let's do it. The Abbott was, was birthed later. And now we have the Abbott, the Harlow, the Bardot, and Cherry Hall within three and a half years from when the idea started. So that is proof right there that success can come from not having the background in it because none of us had any clue what we were doing. And you guys are doing it very well because during non-COVID times, you guys are constantly booked. Yeah, it is it is a very, very busy, adrenaline rushing time. It's, it's nuts. I remember feeling like I got hit by a train quite a few Mondays after last year, but it's so worth it. It's worth all of the bruises. You have no idea where they came from. The pure exhaustion for days, because that just means that you put on some really awesome weddings and corporate events. Do you have a favorite moment throughout the process of, you know, meeting the couples to the nights of their weddings? That's a favorite moment for you? Um, I have two, of course, because I break the rules and have many. My first one would be for when we have ceremonies and it's always so special when the bride walks down the aisle for obvious reasons. But for me, that is like the moment that I sit back and I'm like, holy, you know what? I just did this. Like we made it. She is down the aisle. Everything is going great. She looks beautiful. She's getting married. Like we did this. We're going to make it. It's a moment to really reflect on how long I've known this couple, all the meetings that I've had with them, all the work that's gone into it. That's really a moment for me to just stop and look around and really take it all in. And then my second one would be the final moment at the end of the night when they're getting ready to leave. And it's just like this awkward, you know, this, is this it? is this not it? Like, can we be friends now? Do we like hang out? You know, I've worked with you for a year, two years, and I know some of your greatest moments, some of your darkest moments, all of these things. And I've grown these couple of years with you. And so like, just that moment of we did this, that final hug that, you know, I'll follow you on Instagram and, you know, can't wait to see what's next. And it's just really cool. That's a satisfying feeling at that point. So speaking of satisfying feelings, you also recently got married. So having been on both sides, 
being a bride and planning, what advice do you have for anyone who's currently in the middle of it? I would say my first piece is hire a wedding coordinator, whether it is just a day of, or whether it is someone that starts from the beginning, you cannot do it yourself. I do this for a living. I hired a coordinator. There is a reason behind it. The day of your wedding, you do not want to have to worry about anything. You do not want your family to have to worry about anything. If they mess something up, you're probably going to be really mean to them. But if a coordinator messes it up, you're not even going to know because she's going to fix it before you even know that there was a problem. There were so many things that happen at weddings that our couples never know because they have coordinators, they have planners, and they fix it before the couple ever knows. So that is the biggest piece of advice. Let somebody help you. And then the second one is just don't take it so seriously. It will be the best day of your life. Things are going to go wrong. You know, I forgot all of the cake stands that went on every single one of my tables the day of my wedding, you know, crazy things happen, but it's okay. You're going to laugh about it. My husband dumped a drink in my lap during the prayer before dinner in my dress. It's fine. You laugh about it. That's, you know, those are the stories that we tell now are the funny moments from it. And you want it to be beautiful and it's going to be, and you're going to stress about every detail, but at the end of the day, people aren't going to remember those details. And this sounds so cliche and I'm annoying myself saying it because it's annoying stuff that everyone hears, but I promise it's, it will be okay. You will have the best day. It will be beautiful. You don't need to make it a negative experience. I hate when people are like, oh, I'm just so ready to get my wedding over with. That makes me sad because it's such an exciting day. I don't want it to be over with for you. I want you to truly enjoy the experience and a planner will help you with that. Julie's planner for her wedding. I just want to clone this woman. She was amazing. It was like, you would be like, oh, I need blah, blah, blah. And she'd just appear next to you and would have it. She was fantastic. She had this like never ending bag of things that we just constantly needed. Yeah. Well, and it's also worth it to hire someone that you can be very close with. I mean, these ladies undressed me in a bathroom stall to put my second dress on. And they were just like, all right, here you are. You are new to the bathroom. Let's get the second dress on you so you can go drink. And I was like, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. You've now seen all of me. Have a great evening. <laughs> Before my husband on my wedding night. So you're very close to them if you pick the right one. One of, actually my maid of honor, it is a former wedding coordinator. And so I've entrusted her to take care of all of those things that, that day. Like you have no other responsibilities other than a speech, the wedding coordinator for the day. She's like, I got you. <laughs> that is a great maid of honor to have. Yes. So that wraps up our kind of main portion of questions, but it wouldn't be the Explain Yourself podcast without some listener questions. We had someone ask, what was kind of the biggest mishap that you've maybe had to fix without anybody knowing? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I would say there was an event. It was a January event and we have outside furniture. So my venue manager partner and I were like, let's go get the cushions from the furniture and bring them inside before another storm hits. There was some snow and ice on them. We really wanted to make sure that you know they didn't get damaged. So we drug them inside, kept them upstairs, no big deal. And all of a sudden this person comes up and they're like, Hey, um, there's like water leaking from the ceiling everywhere. And I was like, what do you mean? 
like it's like it's a lot and it's right by the photo booth and there's a computer and wires and just come look at it and we went over there and we hadn't even thought about the cushions and we were like where is the water coming from like holy shit we have this event and water's coming from the ceiling like what do we do so we went upstairs to see where this could have been coming from and we were like oh my goodness they defrost it duh cushions covered in snow and ice of course it's gonna melt when you bring it inside so all of this furniture had melted and was leaking through the floor through the ceiling all over this photo booth so we just had to be like you know what I'm not exactly sure where that water was coming from but we're pretty sure like we took care of it let's just mop it up if for some reason it's still a problem come grab us Lo and behold, we were the problem. We brought the cushions inside. So again, just one of those things that you got to think on your feet and just clean it up and move forward. That's fantastic. I, I mean, it's smart not to like get the bride and stuff involved because there are other things that they need to worry about, but it's always so interesting to hear what actually happens sometimes behind the scenes of weddings. So. <laughs> Way to think on your feet. No, I just, I'm just laughing because I feel like that's like in the moment you're like, okay, we just have to solve this quickly. And then you don't think about like the fact that yes, they will defrost in the heated room. (laughs) Everywhere, all over everything. So we have another listener question who asks what besides the photographer or like a videographer, what would you splurge on? For any wedding and what would you save your money on? So I apologize to all my florists out there. I would save on flowers. I love them and they're so beautiful, but what do you do with them after? It's just so much money goes into them. I have seen thousands of dollars thrown away at the end of the night and flowers. And that just makes my heart hurt. Get creative with centerpieces. Have some flowers. Absolutely. You better carry a bouquet down the aisle as a bride. Absolutely. But there's other options as far as massive displays on every single table that you can save money there. As far as splurge, I would go right back to the planner or coordinator. They are going to be your person that day. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, I think I can do it on my own. And I don't really have another couple thousand dollars in my budget for somebody that like, oh, we can do it. No, get a planner, get a coordinator, splurge on them. Because they're going to be the ones when there's water leaking from the ceiling, they're going to help figure out where the water's coming from and what to do about it. Or if your caterer's running late or someone froze up in the bathroom, like they're the people that are going to help with that and make sure that your day goes as seamless as possible. I love the the tips for save and splurge because those are things that, I mean, everybody has various things that they think are important or not important. Like to me, flowers were not overly important. Invitations, I think are just the biggest waste of money for me personally. Like I'm doing email invites because at this point I'm like, screw it. It's COVID. Like no one cares about a paper invite anymore. You get an email. You're lucky it's not a Facebook invite at this point, (laughs) but those are really good, uh, good tips. We're going to move into some fun questions. So kind of going away from the more serious questions. Our first question that we ask all of our guests is what is your unpopular opinion? Um, my unpopular opinion is that Starbucks coffee sucks 
I, I hate to say it. It's just not good. I don't drink coffee, but I'm very nervous for Annika to unmute herself right now. I do drink a lot of Starbucks coffee, but mostly because there's not a good local coffee shop that's closer to me. So I just go for like the burnt coffee taste. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I drink it because it's everywhere and it's Starbucks and of course you do. But if you were to put, you know, Starbucks and messenger or Starbucks and Mildred's on the same corner, Starbucks would never get a dime of my money. Correct. I'm always going to go for the local coffee shop versus Starbucks in terms of taste and quality, but Starbucks is just so convenient sometimes. The one thing I do miss is Crow's coffee because they had the best chai latte. So when you're back in the KC area, I guess when you're about when I'm back in the KC area, that's where I'll be going. But unfortunately, <laughs> if I do need a drink, I live across the street from a Starbucks. So it's deeply upsetting for me. I do enjoy Crows. There is one semi close to me, but not as close as Starbucks, sadly. It's and just, it's the drive through that gets me. Yes, the like, drive through and the mobile pickup. No, it makes it so easy. Yep, exactly. Okay, we have one last question. And this can apply to anything like books, I can't make up, whatever it is. What are your top three must have products? Oh man, top three must have. Um, my first one would be the Hot Tools blow dry brush. You cannot see my hair right now, but when I tell you that it will change your life, it will change your life. It used to take me three hours to blow dry and straighten and curl my hair. And now it takes like an hour to do all of that. Because blow dry brush is magic. Um, my second one would probably be a good foundation brush, which is hilarious. But I recently learned that that makes a life-changing difference. Um, Tarte has an incredible foundation brush that I... Like I look forward to putting my makeup on because it's that great, which is weird because it's COVID and no one needs to put makeup on, but that will make it fun. And then my third one, this isn't like a product, but Pure Bar, Pure Bar workouts are like my other thing that keeps me sane. They're super, super great. There's different options for them. And shout out to Pure Bar Zona Rosa because they have the greatest girl gang that just makes working out fun and makes you want to be there and makes it feel good. And they have cute clothes. So it's like a double win. I am a big fan of bar classes. They're one of those workouts where you go in and you're like, this is going to be so easy. And then you leave and you're like, I did not know that those muscles existed in Mm -hmm. my body. Yep. Yep. I'm not going to walk tomorrow, but it's, it's still great because I had a great time and I met great people and I got to wear cute workout clothes. Yes. Big fan of bar classes. I also recently switched to using um, a brush for my foundation and a hundred percent agree. It makes such a huge difference. Why did it take me 30 years to figure this out? I've been putting makeup on my face, not 30 years, but for a very long time. Why did it take that long to get the perfect foundation brush? Sponges are out. Brushes are in. Amen. I never liked the sponges. I always got skeezed out by like probably how much bacteria they're full of but that's a different for a different time well this was so much fun we really appreciate you taking the time to join us and explain yourself is there any way listeners can get in touch with you or if they have any questions about 
your myriad of careers, um, mm-hmm. but especially, you know, the wedding business, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my Instagram handle might be the longest one ever, but it is Andrea Elizabeth Kelsey. I have two middle names, so I have a very long Instagram handle. Um, otherwise, my email address, you can always reach out, is Andrea at AbbottEventsKC.com. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Explain Yourself. You can find show notes for this episode on our website at explainyourselfpodcast.com. If you have questions for us, you can get in touch with us there, learn more about Julie and I, and even find some great resources, including our interview prep sheet. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at explainyourselfpodcast. We'll be doing an Instagram live on February 27th where you can ask us questions and we'll be answering. You can also find us on Twitter at explain underscore podcast. We'll be back next week interviewing Spence Sheldon, who's a young entrepreneur with a big heart for his city and the people in it. And per usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please go like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us to grow the show, get new listeners, get great guests, And of course, that way, it's not just our moms listening.